here. I don't need that one. We're good to go. All right, and you guys hear me back there. Well, hey, good evening, Manfred. So it is uh, wonderful to be back here, and um, I hope you don't mind. I'd love to just kind of say a brief word of prayer before I get started and uh, just ask for the Lord's help. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you um, this evening because I recognize that um, no uh, amount of preparation is a substitute for your grace and, uh, Lord God, for your presence. Your word tells us that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there in the midst. You have told us in your word that, Heavenly Father, uh, uh, wherever we would obey you and keep your commandments, O God, that you would come and uh, make your abode with us. Um, You, Lord God, give us um, all kinds of promises of how your presence would make itself available for the unique working and participation, Lord God, in your work. And so we just ask uh, for that tonight, um, that you would, uh, Lord God, make me completely forgettable and uh, cause, Lord God, your word to be absolutely uh, unforgettable. And Lord God, allow yourself to come through, Lord God, in the message, uh, in keeping with the words we just sang, Lord God, of how great you are. Um, this is our prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. We also ask, oh God, for um, forgiveness, both of myself and Lord God, anything else, oh God, that we might be holding on to in our hearts that would serve as a distraction or a takeaway. Heavenly Father, from um, just kind of the free working of your spirit. And uh, Lord God, that's, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, I heard uh, just a moment ago, John, uh, asked you to make sure that you uh, took notes. And so one of the first exercises in note-taking that I'd like to uh, offer that are going to be so useful throughout our time together is if you got notes uh, or a place to write something, I'd like for you to write down three names for me. Write down three names, at least three names, of people who are uh, in your life or at least within your reach that uh, either do not know the Lord or that are walking in some way at distance from him, whether this is a relationship that is in disrepair, um, maybe they suffering from some level of church hurt, but they are not in active fellowship with the saints of God or actively pursuing a healthy relationship with the Lord, or they just straight up do not know him. And also, uh, in keeping with what we just sang, how great thou art, um, I want you to also not play safe. I don't want you to put down names of people who told you on your way here via text that I'm, uh, I just gave my life to the Lord tonight and I'm planning on showing up to church uh, on Sunday, right? I want you, I mean, just the most scurrilous and unrepentant person you know, don't be afraid to put that name on there. Why? Because if any measure of repentance takes place in that person's life, it's not because you came out or through a conference with some skillful argument or some wonderful three-point outline from me that's going to make that happen. And so I want us to, um, to kind of grow our faith teeth, uh, if you will, and uh, be prepared to trust God to be the active, um, the active one when it comes to disciple-making. Um, we are active in our obedience, but he is the one who is actively transforming the hearts. And so write down three names. And maybe it'll take you a couple of hours. Maybe you need to soak in that on the way home. Uh, maybe you're, 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 you're doing something with both your hands and you can't write right now. Uh, but I just want to put that on the table. Let's, let's get uh, three names per person that you know in your life that are at some degree of distance or disfellowship from the Lord or just do not know him. And then I also want to um, put on the table kind of a working definition of discipleship or disciple making. And that is to help a person take the next spiritual step. OK, so this would be a person who may be uh, walking in relationship with the Lord, but um, not serving at their max potential. And you want to help them take the next step. This may be a person who doesn't even own a Bible. And the next practical step would be to give them one. Uh, this may be a person who has never even heard the formal articulation of the gospel. And when you say to them the word gospel, they think about a certain genre of music or they think about a certain group of books in the Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But they are not thinking about the formal uh, articulation of the gospel in First Corinthians, chapter 15, verses one through five. I want you to think about um, people in your life who you can just help make the next spiritual step. And and just call that disciple making. And the reason I want to do that is to kind of demystify uh, for a moment when we think about disciple making. Are we thinking about, man, 
I got to I got to get somebody saved. No, you will never be able to do that, regardless of how many people have come to know the Lord as a result of your relationship with them. You didn't get them saved. And so I, I want to take the burden off and I wanted to put it on back on the Lord where it belongs. Your and my responsibility are to simply obey and to helping people. Think of yourself as a great tour guide of the gospel. Right. And you're like, if you've ever been to one of these theme parks or you know, maybe it's like an animal world or something like that. And there's a person just at the front of the bus on a microphone, just kind of explaining what you see on your left and right. And it's the, the people on the bus are the ones that are that are taking it in. You're just a tour guide for the gospel. You and I are just tour guides for the gospel. You are not making anybody do anything. So when we talk about disciple making, it's the Lord that's doing it. But you and I want to learn how to be more diligent tour guides uh, in that regard. So um that's just some groundwork, three names. And then I want to just throw out that working definition of disciple making, just helping people take the next spiritual step. And sometimes that step is going from a ag, from an atheist position to an agnostic position. It could be that gentle. It could be that practical. It could be somebody going from an agnostic position to a to a to a becoming a deist. We'll talk about that. A person who believes in God, but doesn't necessarily they believe that he's just kind of a higher power, but not necessarily an active personal force. You can move somebody from being a, 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 a finite deist to actually believing that there is a God, but not necessarily knowing if Jesus is the way. Right. And you're just kind of helping with that. You see this. So we're just talking about disciple making in a very practical way. Uh, and this is what we're going to be doing this weekend is how do we help people take the next spiritual step? You, you know, again, it could be someone who has just never officially attended a church service outside of whatever their traditional um, a faith context is. And you're just like, you know what? My step in that person's life is just to invite them to Brantford. I'm just going to invite them. And that's it. Does that make sense? And then you and then you'll you'll look at their life again and say, well, what can I do next? Can I get them reading the Bible with me? So so I want us to number one, I want to simplify disciple making in terms of our action steps. And then I want to elevate it to let you know that it's God's work. So don't be afraid to to, to reach really far and wide in terms of the people that you would be prepared to pray for in this. Can we do that together? All right, good. Um, so I, over the course of the weekend, I want to talk about the five imperatives of disciple making, the five imperatives of disciple making. An imperative is just simply when we see in the passage uh, something like, a, uh, I don't know, like a traffic light, like it clearly says this is what needs to be done. You need to stop or you need to go. Right. Or you need to have caution. These are what imperatives are. And so uh, there are more than five imperatives, I'm sure. But there is at least five that I've decided because I think I'm going to be speaking somewhere around five times. I think so. I decided to just kind of carve out five um, and I want to share them with you just kind of up front um, what they are, what we're going to be looking at. And so I believe that there are five things that the Bible tells us need to be done, needs to be done when it comes to disciple making. Uh, they are teaching, uh, contending for the faith, wrestling depending, and then this gets tricky, sanctifying and defending. And uh, I may combine that. I'm going to combine those two in the same message, even though that makes up six. But I may just really focus on uh, defending. So teaching is one of the imperatives. Contending, and I will not necessarily preach them in this order. Uh, wrestling. Depending. That would make more sense. And then defending. We'll actually get into some defense of the faith type stuff. Um, all right. So that's what we're going to do. So tonight I'm only going to talk about the, the, the first imperative that I did name, um, which is uh, teaching. When we talk about teaching. So when I look at the scriptures and I and I listen to this word uh, or I hear this word uh, disciple making or discipleship, most people probably think of this as a uniquely New Testament term. As a matter of fact, I had a brother to call me a couple of days ago and says, man, is there discipleship in the Old Testament? And the answer is absolutely yes. And there are three platforms in the Bible where I see God has always had his covenant people, whether it be his church or whether it be his covenant people, Israel. There are three platforms where we've always been involved in the work of disciple making. And those three platforms are in the family, in the field or the mission field and in the fold that is in the church. So the work of disciple making never goes away. So where are we getting this from? So let's talk about one of the earliest indications of God expecting there to be disciple making activity. And we're going to talk about it in the family, within the context of the family. Um, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses one through nine. I love in using familiar passages. Uh, nothing exotic here. It says in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses one through nine. Now, this is the commandment. 
the statutes um, and the rules that the Lord your God uh, commanded me to teach you that you may not do that. You may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and that you and your sons and your sons sons uh, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. And all the days and that your days may be long and that here, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly uh, as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then we move on to verse four here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you are by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is one of the fundamental commandments of God to his people Israel. Now, this conversation, while we're focused on it in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, as early as Exodus, before their feet had ever finished touching uh, the, the, the seabed of the, uh, um, the, uh, <clears throat> the, in the parting of the sea, God was already talking about establishing an operating rhythm within Israel when you conducted the feast of the Passover and various other things. When your sons shall ask you, why do you do this? You shall tell them that this was because the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And you'll notice that the Lord would continuously reemphasize over and over, almost, I mean, with, with a degree, like a, like a, like a, like a redundant parent. Over and over again, he would talk to Israel and he would say things like, and tell them the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought you out of Egypt, says the following or promises the following or wants you to do the following. So God was serious about this significant moment. Now, in Israel's life, that was the most significant moment. It was the uh, God delivering them out of the bondage of Egypt and then destroying their enemies that held them in bondage. And then that became the signature moment for his covenant people. That was always his reference point that they should be actually training others in that knowledge. Even when a sojourner or a foreigner, a person who was not a native to Israel, came in amongst them and wanted to hang out with Israel, God said, hey, they can't participate in covenant relationship unless they do the following things. But if they want to, here's the measure. So you can kind of see that helping people who were even foreigners to Israel, while we don't even feel that discipleship language in the Old Testament, was always a part of God's plan to pull people closer to covenant and making a door and a methodology. But the methodology was pulling them close to one central ideal. Do you agree that our God did this? This is the God who brought us out of Egypt, crushed and destroyed our enemies and made us a covenant people for himself. When we we fast forward to the New Testament, we see God doing the same thing at the cross. He took our enemies to task, made an open show of them and completely uh, destroyed and crushed our enemies, brought us out of the bondage of sin. And then that became from that point forward, always the reference point of God's great work in our lives. And then we are called to make disciples based on that knowledge and that event and that moment. And so we can kind of see that whenever God has done a great work of deliverance, that always becomes the centerpiece of what he wants to be communicated throughout all generations. So let's get back to this notion of the family. So when we look at verse two, I want you to pay attention to something there in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse two. It says that you may um, do these things in the land which you are going over to possess in that you may fear the Lord your God and you, you and your sons and your sons' sons. The first thing that we know about disciple making is that it should be multi-generational. We know that disciple making should be multi-generational. In other words, um, regardless of your current role within a family, if you're the senior statesman and you are a believer in the Lord and your children are now adults and they have uh, and, and they are living before the Lord, you as grandma and grandpa have not retired from the disciple making process because it wants your sons and your sons, sons, your daughters and your daughters, daughters to um, be involved in being regularly refreshed in the knowledge of God in his work. Now, why is that such an important exercise that discipleship start within families? It starts within families. Here's why. Number one, there is already relationship capital. 
There's relationship capital. Let's just be absolutely honest. Even when someone is telling you something that you that the information itself is doubtful, you don't know how to receive it. If you fully trust and believe the person, you'll take it. Does that make sense? But if you've got double doubt, I don't know the guy, I don't know the gal, and I don't even know if this is factual information, you're less likely to receive it. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I grew up in a Christian household, and there were things that my grandmother said to me that I was like, "Mm, I don't know about that. But grandma would never lead me astray. And so even if I can't fully wrap my heart and my mind around that information, I know that there is relationship capital. This person loves me. This is why the family is such a crucial platform for disciple making. When we hear the word disciple making, I think our minds often go to the nth degree. I need to go out here in the grocery store and bump somebody's eggs out of their cart and be like, oh, look at the Lord kicking in on your behalf and rescuing your eggs. You know, and we want these exotic examples when really the Lord wants discipleship to be happening at the dinner table. And so when you create a culture again, and discipleship is like steering a cruise ship, not a speedboat. Right. Um, so so and what I mean by that is in our homes, when we create a culture of disciple making, we are helping our children and ourselves. Multiple generations become gospel fluent. To be to to understand what real time application and real time just conversational disciple making looks like, because what has happened to us in the American church in many ways is that we have detached disciple making and made it like a special regiment. That's for the spiritual Navy SEALs or that's like a special group. That's a department within the church. And so it's only when discipleship comes back to the dinner table that it becomes a normal part of the operating rhythm, even for families. Um, and so not only is there real time or is there relationship capital that automatically exists within the family that we want to have, but there's also real time contextualization. That is versus impersonal illustrations, regardless of how um, nice a speaker you may think I am. I don't live with you. And any Im- illustrations that I give you are impersonal and disconnected, even if they are vivid, even if they are believable, even if they are riveting, they're still impersonal and disconnected. Even if you think I'm a nice guy, they're still impersonal illustrations. But the family context provides real time contextualization for how God's word works. So imagine, again, if you were uh, in the ancient Near East and you were a second or third generation uh, Israelite, you weren't there to see the Red Sea uh, part. You just weren't there for that. But your uncle goes out and go, oh, and here are the shoes that I was wearing when we crossed. Or here's the here's the here's where I was standing. Or here's a here's a piece of wood from one of the chariot wheels that that washed up on the seashore. Real time contextualization of the work of God. And we're not talking about worshiping relics or anything like that. But there are real things that God has done in the lives of actual people sitting here, whether you wrote them down or remember. But they are vivid portrayals of God's excellent greatness in your life. And that when you tell them to the family, they'd be well received and well contextualized because your children and your children's children are living inside the evidences of them. They are seeing it in the evidence of in your real life. Whereas if you were to share that outside of your home, someone would say, oh, that's coincidence. God didn't do that. Now, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't be sharing outside the home, but I'm just emphasizing why we definitely should be creating a culture of disciple making and regularly talking about the ways and the precepts and the testimony of what God did. And the reason I believe that's so important is not because I have some fancy practical manual or example other than the Bible. And God says we should do that. And also I have the great example of. At the uh, at the transition from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges, if anybody knows the difference between those two communities, the opening phrases of the book of Judges was this. And there came a, a, a generation in Israel that did not know the Lord or did not remember all the great works that the Lord had done. They forgot them. And so there is something powerful about actively remembering what God has done and transferring that to each generation. Uh, that is a, um, a an antibiotic against uh, spiritual recidivism or, 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 or falling back into faith or uh, backsliding. Right. So so this is important to us that we have we are involved in multi-generational discipleship. And so I and, and I, I'm, I'm encouraging our older generation to get involved in this respect because you are such an incredible wealth of not just information, but real time context that your Younger generations, subsequent generations can appreciate that is far more powerful than any history book that the schools might provide. 
I mean, it, man, when I hear my father talk to me about some of the things that he endured uh, uh, as a, an emerging adult in Birmingham, Alabama, in his 20s, a place that was rife with racism, it's so much more powerful than any of the videos that I see about Martin Luther King and the different people who walked over to the, the, the Raymond Pettus Bridge in, in Selma. I mean, those are great events, but they are dis- disconnected from me. But my father's events of the same kinds of activities are riveting to me. They draw me in and they they help me to appreciate the reality of how God protected him in his 20s and and how he preserved him with a view toward even promoting us or preserving us as a family because I wasn't even on the scene yet. And so I get a a foretaste or this uh, a foretaste, if you will, of the, the providence of God and his sovereignty just to listen to my father's personal testimony. And so, again, uh, those of you who are uh, older uh, generations or our senior generations or our senior statesmen within families do not believe that because um, you can't work an iPad or an iPhone or you're not up to snuff on the latest things that the, the subsequent generations want to know about, that you don't have something of great value to them. You have uh, you are you of immense and incredible. value. as a matter of fact, I would say you, you, you have a critical uh, uh, to um, um, uh, for fast forwarding. Uh, and immersing your uh, your subsequent generations in the testimonies of God's excellent goodness. You are there. You've got automatic relationship capital and you've got real time contextualization that you can offer within family. So the first point, um, James, how long did that take me? I know you got me on 40 minutes. Eight minutes. Perfect. All right. All right. So um, discipleship matching should happen in the family and it should be multigenerational. But it should also, according to verse three, if you look at it, hero Israel uh, hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly and that the Lord, your God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. It's also not only multi-generational, but it also has multi-application, multi-application. Uh, the health of the family and of the nation are the first fruits. So the health of the family, as you saw within Israel, right, um, their families were said that their families would actually multiply. They would grow in number and they would grow in knowledge of who God was uh, throughout the, the Old Testament. It is impossible to escape the phrase and they shall know. They shall know the Lord is just uh, 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 not this bent on committed to his people knowing him, not just in an academic way, but in an experiential and a very personal way. He is committed that we should know him. And so, again, it's within the crucible of the family. And we're also now you see expanding beyond the family. We're creating entire generations and a nation, if you will, a, a group of people, a covenant community that is well versed in knowing uh, who God is. But not just knowing that he is the God who brought us out of Egypt, so to speak, if you're thinking like an Israelite, but knowing that he is the God who provided us with water, provided us with bread, protected us in war. You, you see that all those those little milestones in Israel's evolution Every generation had this new segment or this new opportunity, these new episodes of trust. And so that's why within our families, these multiple platforms of, of, of application are crucial as we are making disciples. Let no opportunity go un, uh, unaddressed. I, um, I, uh, I had to repent because as we were sitting around my dinner table, my 15 year old son, or he was 14 at the time, as we talked about, we had this we had this game that we play uh, called How Did You See the Lord Today? Uh, how did you hear his voice, see his hand or feel his presence in something that was happening in your life? And if they couldn't get that, it was like, well, how are you thankful for him? And so about, um, man, three times a week, my son was talking about how um, the Lord blessed him on a quiz that he didn't study for. And uh, <laughs> and I would often take that moment to kind of put on my other hat. And we're like, man, you need to start studying. What's going on here? But then I was like, no, that's his world. That's his crucible. And if that's how the Lord, yes, he needs to study. But I was letting the air out of that moment where he was truly thankful because he had gotten a good grade and he associated that with God. And we want to celebrate that as a family. This is the testimony of God in the heart of an eighth grader. And I want that. I want him to feel that. I want him to see that. And then we begin to say, well, did you pray before? What? Yeah, yeah, I prayed before the test. And he was like, man, I just got to school and I forgot that I had studied for every, I've done all this other homework, but I forgot to pray about that one. And so creating a culture of just simple dependency was one of the things we want to do. So when we talk about tactics and practical things, creating a culture of practical dependency. Do we pray? Do we simply pray? And do we pray in ways that are just kind of like putting on a little um, hair grease where it's just like you just kind of, uh, the audience wouldn't know or not know if I put it on there. Are we praying in ways that become so essential that if I didn't do it, people would notice? 
And those are the kind of prayers that we want to move into when it comes to disciple making. Our families, our friends need to hear about the things that we're praying about. Even our unredeemed friends, if we're inviting them around our dinner table and they come within our family context, uh, do we have ways for them to see the things that we're trusting God for or to naturally hear about what we're trusting God for? And there are things that when God comes through, man, it becomes, you know, as our batting average increases, it becomes hard for them to associate that with coincidence. No, prayer works. Might not like your God, might not want to pray to your God, might not know how to pray, but I know that those people over there are always praying and they're always talking about how God is answering those prayers. And they're not generic. They're very specific. That's a critical part of disciple making. It's a, it just becomes a natural part of, again, the family operating rhythm. So uh, growing in knowledge and also growing in number. The Lord blesses us to be able to multiply. He multiplies our influence. The whole idea of Israel increasing in number was about increasing their influence. Uh, yes, it was about numerical increase, but it was also increasing their size and their influence as a nation. The, the Bible is always reminding us that they went in as a family of 33 and came out as, you know, it was 600,000 uh, just on the, that's just counting the heads of men. It was probably 1.3 million when you think about the total group of people that came out of the Exodus. And the Bible is very clear about giving us those numbers because they want us to see just the enormity of God's people or even the smallness of God's people and the great things that he does through them. And so the Lord is always trying to increase uh, the, um, the level of influence. Verses four through nine here in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these things that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall that shall be. Listen to this on your heart and you shall teach them to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them. Uh, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, again, one more note on this whole multi-generational piece. Um, our youth have an uncanny knack for being incredibly honest and open with things that are part of their normal operating rhythm. But if they see disciple-making and sharing the gospel as some kind of add-on, it becomes less likely to occur. And so this is why I see God, uh, I believe I see God within Israel, not only as a constant reminder to Israel to make it a part of their core family, uh, the way that they do things. But you see that the, the God is the knowledge of God is everywhere, not just as decor, but it's everywhere that it should be on your heart and on your house, on your way, lying down, waking up, that, that the, uh, the idea of God should be saturating your home space. Right. It should be a regular conversation. There should be no domains within the home space where God is not allowed to be an active part of the conversation and not just an active part, but is always part of the conversation uh, on your hand and on your head, on the doorposts and on your gates. Right. So all these places. What does this mean? What's the practical application of all these places where God says he wants the, the testimony and the knowledge of him to be posted in the family? Uh, number one, to apply God's word everywhere is to imply that God is everywhere. And you know what that is? That's just a basic showcasing of his omnipresence. This is a practical way to practice the omnipresence of God. If God is applicable everywhere, then it applies that he is everywhere. So I want you to think about this. When we when we launch our young ones from our homes and they go off to a place, do they get a real sense that God is there? Well, they would if they grew up in a context where God was applicable to everything. Like God has something to say about what we watch. God has something to say about what we wear. God has something. To, we want to say something to God about what we eat, even if it's just the simplicity of giving thanks. Right. We're not talking about um, uh, regiment. We're not talking about uh, uh, legalism here. We're just talking about saturating our homes. One of the first platforms of disciple making, saturating it with the knowledge and the conversation of God so that those who come into our home, they enter into this ready laboratory of the testimony of God and those who leave our home do not feel awkward or out of sorts in naturally talking about God. Right. If your father is a huge sports fan, when your young ones go out, they're readily adept to talk about sports and they can engage in that conversation at a heartbeat. And even if their other friends don't know about sports, they don't feel awkward being the one that knows the most about sports. Pick anything of that nature. If it saturates the home conversation, then it becomes a sticking point in the heart of those who leave our house. And even when they come in, 
And we want that signature. Uh, Number two, um, to put God's word on everything is to apply that God is over everything. So it's a showcase not only of his omnipresence, but also of his omnipotence. That means that God is relevant to everything. We want that. The reason that I'm pushing hard on this is because in America today, uh, compartmentalization of the faith is one of the most crippling effects to making disciples. Oh, well, well, well no, separation of church and state. No, the, the churchy religious stuff only belongs right here. You shouldn't be talking about that at work. But no, if it's if it's if God is on everything or through everything that I do, if it's a regular part of my conversation, then I view him as being over everything. And I become more dependent on him, not less likely to take action. I'm not saying that we should cower in a corner and wait from a wait for a banner from heaven before we take practical common sense moves. But we want to be people who live a life of total dependency upon God and that he is in everything that we do. Our faith is at its fullest when we recognize that God is here and active. It's one thing to just regular, to just generically acknowledge that God is here um, based on the faces and the nods and some of the body language. I don't think anybody doubts that God is here, but it's another thing to know that he is here and he's actively helping. He's working. He's doing something. And that's what happens in a household where we are. That becomes the first place where we're regularly saturating the conversation and the environment with the knowledge of God and how he works. So um, that's our first point that. Uh, uh, when we saw disciple making should take place in the family. We also believe that disciple making, according to the scriptures, should take place in the field. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Everybody knows this one. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Everybody familiar with those words. So not only should disciple making be taking place in the family, it should also be taking place in the field. Now, the beautiful thing about this passage that you should notice immediately is not rushing to the baptism, not rushing to the to the teaching or the, the, the making of disciples, but we should not rush past the fact that Jesus decides to introduce the Great Commission on the basis of this statement. All authority has been given to me, both in heaven and in earth. Now, that's staggering because what it means is that every ounce of disciple making that I do is happening within the theater of God's authority. And that's powerful. It's within the theater of his authority. That means that whether I'm skilled, whether I'm terrible, whether I try to share my faith and I get chewed to pieces or not, it's happening within the theater of God's authority. I can't help but think about Paul's words when he mentioned being in prison, that there were those out there sharing the faith out of ill intent just so that they could increase the amount of punishment. So Paul was being penalized. He was imprisoned, arrested for sharing the faith, for promoting the gospel. And as the gospel was increasing in popularity on the outside, it would increase the, the, the punitive nature of his circumstances. It would increase the, the level of tension. And there were people that were doing it for that very purpose. And Paul said, I'm cool with that because at least the gospel is being preached. And so what we need to understand is that regardless of the methodology, regardless of how messy it becomes, whether or not we get completely shut down or, or whatever the case may be, that we are sharing the gospel within the theater of God's own authority. It's his message. As a matter of fact, the Bible self-defines the gospel as what? The power of God unto salvation. So it's not your power. And if it goes in a messy way, if it gets sideways, it happened within the theater of his glory. And it is his power to make disciples. So we need to operate with that kind of confidence. As a matter of fact, I want you to notice that your insufficiency in gospel sharing, your insufficiency, not your in effort, not your laziness toward it, but your insufficiency, your inability to do it well and to say it well is actually a plus. Because as people come to know him, your heart has to automatically recognize that this is God's doing. I want you to remember when when God recruited Moses to deliver his people, one of his first uh, pushbacks was, I am not a person who is articulate in speech. And God was like, don't worry about it. I'll be your mouth. And so our insufficiency in these areas is actually uh, a quite a plus because the New Testament fast forward tells us that in our weakness, the Lord's strength is made perfect. So it's a beautiful thing. So the less qualified you feel, probably the more qualified you are, because for those of us who feel qualified, we often blunder in evangelism. I'll be I'll make the first confession for years as a um, 
young college student, uh, I noticed on the campus that I attended, the nation of Islam had quite the foothold. And uh, they would often mangle Christians. I mean, chew them up. And I would often ask the Lord, why is it that the believers, Christians, that those of us who have the truth are the least skilled in defending or promoting or propagating their faith in this context? And so I went into this mode of heavy study and began really pushing hard so that I could win arguments. And I did. I went out and I won a lot of arguments, but I never won any souls. Won a ton of arguments, but I never won any souls. And I was just a just a just a really just ashy knuckled vigilante for getting in people's faces who didn't know Jesus. And I was going to bring it to them. Never want anybody to the Lord. Not to my knowledge. The Lord may have been gracious and allowed some of those seeds to manifest later down the road. And so later in life, as I realized that winning arguments doesn't win souls, but what I, and, and, and that salvation doesn't come by information. And almost regardless of how fancy my illustrations and ideas were, uh, uh, that, that there was a degree of dependency on me. I thought I needed to explain it harder. And actually, the people that I was winning in arguments, they would come back to me, and all they had done is restudied more to come back and try to win. So it just became for them a great game of debate. And that wasn't evangelism. That was just kind of a, the Lord used it, right, because it's happening within the theater of his authority. But I was totally insufficient, even though I thought I was sufficient. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying all of this, this blunder, I am saying this to encourage those of you who feel totally unprepared and totally unskilled. You are the ideal candidates to go out and share the gospel. Those of us who think we know what we're doing, we often get in our own way. And we're getting in the way of God's own glory. And so um, if you feel insufficient, that's all right. You're in a good space. Verse 19, not only does it take place in the theater of God's glory, uh, but I want you to notice the reach of the activity that God expected. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So not only um, should we be reaching those that are near, we should be reaching those that are far. Our evangelistic efforts, our desire to make disciples should be both of our neighbors and of the nations. And so as a local church, Brantford, I'm telling you, as you are writing down the three names of people that you want to to draw near. I'm assuming that these names come from your neighbors. I want to appeal to you as a church to also get some sort of formal strategy that you're supporting or either being involved in, which I'm certain that you may be at some level, work that's happening in the nations and regularly celebrate what's happening within the nations. The nations beyond here, well beyond here, because that's just part of what God expects from all of those who are involved, regardless of our ability. And we should never say to ourselves, well, we're we're too small, we're too far, we're, we just don't have the, 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 the stuff. Nah, whatever. Jesus is talking to 12 people right now in the immediate context. Right. No building, no fund, just obedience if they'll bring it to the table. All right. So uh, the Great Commission also tells us that the breadth of our teaching should take on a certain scope. It says teaching them to observe in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always and to the end of the age. When we consider Jesus, the person who's saying this, I want you to think about how Jesus taught. So he told them to teach all the things. Man, that sounds like a lot. Well, how did Jesus handle that? John told us that if everything that Jesus talked about was to be committed to paper, we wouldn't have a, we wouldn't have space to contain all the books. But I noticed a couple of things that Jesus does very beautifully uh, in, in both public and in private. He had a habit that I believe that we should adopt when it comes to teaching all things. In public, he had a tendency to compress and in private, he had a tendency to unpack. So uh, when asked uh, which is the greatest of all the commandments, that's 613 laws. And Jesus broke it down to two. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. He wasn't um, uh, diminishing the other laws. He told us that clearly in Matthew chapter five. He didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. But Jesus had a wonderful way of compressing it in public platforms, but then unpacking it in private. Because what did he do when he sat down with his disciples? So so one in public, he told parables, but then in private, he would unpack and define those parables for his disciples. Um when Jesus uh, was resurrected from the dead, um, he took his disciples aside um, after, after uh, in, in, there at the end of Luke. And it says that he walked them through the scriptures, through Moses, the prophets and the writings and showed them how all the scriptures pointed to him. So what am I saying? What does that mean for us? When we talk about teaching all that Jesus taught, we need a formal strategy. Lord, how do I in a public situation simplify what you said? And then how do I create a platform where in private I can further unpack? 
if I may give you a, a further example, I have a tendency to be very wordy. And so as I'm encountering someone, I feel like I haven't done the full work unless I get it all out in that moment. So I'm constantly looking for ways to compress my presentation of the gospel when I'm in a public setting, but then be prepared to fully unpack it when I'm in a private setting. So as you're studying the Bible, don't feel obligated to to dump everything that you know on every person that you see in every moment that you see them. Do what Jesus did. Compress it in public, not not hide it. Compress, just compact it in, in, in public, but then be prepared to unpack it in private. Now, that strategy only works. It only works if you have some intentionality around the same people you encounter in public, inviting them into a private setting where you can do further unpacking. And we have to be committed to that type of activity. So the Lord Jesus Christ did a great job of not only preaching parables, but also giving meaning to them and allowing us to see how the Bible actually points to him, really simplifying things, showing how all roads lead to the gospel. This is a kind of gospel literacy that we ourselves need to also adopt. I call it increasing in gospel literacy and gospel fluency. Have you guys heard this before? Have I talked about this gospel literacy and gospel fluency? Yeah. Yeah, we need to adopt that. And we're going to talk about some of those exercises uh, in some of our later sessions. So finally, creating disciples, uh, not only in the family, not only in the field, but you remember this one, Second Timothy 2, 2, and the things that you have, uh, you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to or entrust to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Also making disciples within the fold. But I want you to take note of some very special wording that Paul uses, not the ones that we're accustomed to seeing. I want you to look at the ones that we might speed through. In verse one of Second Timothy, chapter two, Paul begins this way, talking to Timothy, you then my child. Now, isn't that curious? In the New Testament, we often think about discipleship as being more of an institutional initiative. But when Paul gives us the foremost passage on discipleship in the New Testament, he's referring to Timothy as his child. In other words, reconnecting to that Old Testament idea, that idea that it that that discipleship is is first and foremost a family affair, even though Timothy is not his biological child, he still views him as his child in the faith. That family context, that family mentality, that we're drawing people into the family, calling people to to Christ and to our Father, needs to live within the fragrance of our discipleship. That these are brothers and sisters that we're we're trying to bring along brothers and sisters in the faith. That needs to live there, um, and I, I think that's a crucial mentality. But I want you to notice also um, that later, and I don't have it here in the passage, but the same passage. Paul talks to Timothy. He refers to him as my child in the faith. But when he gets later in the conversation, he says, I want you to I want you to do battle. And I want you to work. Uh, I want you to do the work of a soldier. I want you to do the work of a of a of a of, a, of an athlete. Right. Or someone who strives for the crown. I want you to to do the work of a farmer. He begins to speak to his child in a very adult context. Why is that? Because discipleship has what I would like to call a boys to men dynamic, a boys to men or a girls to women dynamic. Right. We are not just dumping information. We're actually trying to move people along and grow them up in the faith. This is what we're doing. We're helping people reach a place of maturity. So this family ideology does not escape us. But then there's something else that another word that Paul uses in addition to uh, you, then my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard of me in the presence of many witnesses. Again, so the things that you've heard me talk about in this very public platform, I want you to then be going to unpack them. I want you to actually he uses the word among many witnesses entrust to faithful men to entrust. This word entrust means to give it in such a way that it is uh, that it goes undisturbed, unmolested, unchanged from the way that it was originally delivered. Uh, I believe that the, when it comes to disciple making, we must make sure that what we are handing down is actually connected to the text. Paul, one of the most, not one of, the most, by his own credentials and his own exercise in Scripture, having been responsible for having uh, authored 14 of the 27 New Testament epistles, one of the most learned there is, right? He would come in and he would say uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm giving to you exactly what was delivered to me. No embellishments, no reductions, 
I'm not paring it down. I'm not trying to add anything to it. I'm just giving you the gospel exactly as it was given to me. As a matter of fact, when when uh, Paul gave us instruction on how to conduct uh, the Lord's table, he says, hey, I'm just giving it to you in the same manner that the Lord did uh, uh, when he first did it. So there is something about this continuity of what we hand down, that it is an entrust that without embellishment. Why am I uh, uh, beating this drum? I want us to be comfortable in giving people the raw, uh, the raw nuts and bolts of the word and not feel the necessity of being fancy. Right. Yes. Contextualize it. But don't feel any obligation to be fancy. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation, not the excellency of speech, as we'll cover in in later sessions when we talk about uh, depending. It's it's not colorful illustrations, but it is the actual raw capacity of God's word. It has power to crawl into people's hearts and under the influence of God's grace and the watering of his spirit to actually grow faith and draw people to repentance. And I believe that once we kind of take the weight off of us and we'll just obediently share exactly what we heard and exactly what was delivered to us. We will see God work in incredibly powerful ways when it comes to disciple making. And it will encourage us when we see that fruit of discipleship. I believe that the Lord wants to work through the least of these, the least of us in many ways. So that those that consider ourselves to be the most, the Lord can say, wait a minute. You notice that that's not just elder work. That's everybody's work. Like the Lord wants that to be apparent in the body, that evangelism and discipleship isn't just elder work. It isn't just fancy teacher work. It's everybody's work. He wants that. But then what is the uh, the end game for this in the fold discipleship as it happens with right here within these within these four walls is discipleship would take place here. Entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we're going from boys to men and trusting to faithful. But the end game is that they will be in some level of training to serve. We should never stop growing on our continuum, on the continuum of just growing in God. We, were, we should never stop. Like our growth in the knowledge of God's word should, should subsequently result in a growth in how we serve. Does that make sense? We should grow as we're growing in knowledge of him. We should also be growing in our service of him. If you feel like you're on cruise control, man, how else? What else? Who can I be serving? Now, I want us to also think about serving as not being serving. I don't don't think about serving positionally. Think about serving functionally. Right. Oftentimes, because of how we've been groomed by corporate America, when you think about up in your game from a service capacity, you think about, well, I need a promotion. But in the body of Christ, it's a family. How do I serve positionally? Excuse me. How do I serve the, the, the family better? How do I serve functionally? Again, remember, don't 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 forget the family context. What happens within the context of a family when someone increases in capacity? They begin to say, oh, no, 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 I'll, I'll take that task over. No, I'm not trying to become mom. I'm not trying to become dad. I'm not trying to become anything other than just a greater asset to the family in some way. And so that's what disciple making does in the fold. It increases our capacity to serve. It matures us from uh, girls to women, boys to men. And it also moves up, moves us from uh, moves us to seeing that we can just entrust people with the natural word of God and what he has said and that that entrust would actually um, call us to a place of faithfulness. So, uh, again, uh, the first of the five imperatives is that disciple making involves teaching, that there should be teaching both at the family level, in the field and in the fold. And so, hey, man, it's a Friday night. You got some games on. You got some shows you're trying to get to. I want to get you to those things. Um, and then we're going to do some more heavy lifting in the subsequent days on, on this. So I hope this was uh, I hope this was useful to you in, in, in terms of perspective. And then just to kind of review really quickly, um, the five imperatives that we're going to be working through is teaching, contending, wrestling, depending, sanctifying and also defending. And I've asked you, if you would write down three names of people within your social context that you're going to be praying for. You're just going to start by praying for uh, regardless of what you think you can do. I don't want you to write down names that you think are possible that you could do something fancy. I just want you to say these are people who are far from the Lord that he has given me reach. Uh, they're, they're within my reach. I just know them on my job. They're in my they're in my family. And then I think there was a second action item uh, also. And you got to help me. What was it, John? Because I didn't write this down. 
<laughs> there was the three names and there was another uh, item that I offered up. Does anybody remember what that is? Mm, I think it was a strategy of making sure for the neighbors and the nations that if we didn't have that institutionally, I think that was. Uh, so we can talk more about that uh, if we have a nation's strategy or something to, to export the gospel, not only to those that are with, on, on that list of three, but also do we have something larger? I think it was there. Uh, if not, trust me, it'll come back to me, and we have a lot of time um, together in the next few days. Um, is it inappropriate for me to open the floor to questions and then close with prayer? I'd, I'd love to. Uh, just kind of, uh, I'll take a couple of questions if there are any. Um, I'd really, do, your questions would even probably help shape uh, some of the way that I handle the other, um, uh, some of the other topics. I don't preach in kind of a predefined box. I'm more than prepared to pivot. If I hear something that says this is this is a better this is a better um, direction for where you are congregationally. Wonderful. Okay. Oh, would you like me to talk about them now, or just make sure that they they get incorporated over the weekend? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So, so hey, great question. Um, man, the Lord graced me uh, to be bivocational for, uh, well, I wasn't bivocational for 20 years. I just worked at the same company or thereabouts for 20 years. And, you know, when I first got there, some of you young people can appreciate this, I was on the bottom of the totem pole. So I was a little bit tentative about what I could do and what I could say. Um, and um, one of the things that I committed to was just a handful of non-negotiables. Like when I'm out in a social context, I will give thanks for my food. Sounds awfully like uh, simple, but you'd, you'd, you won't believe uh, the first three to four times it made the other people I was eating with awkward. Uh, the first uh, the, the next five to six times it made them curious. Hey, man, what you be saying? Because I don't say it out loud. And I took advantage. And one time someone asked me what I was saying. And I legitimately not only had asked the Lord uh, to give thanks for my food, but that he would create a curiosity for his son, Jesus Christ. And so when the person asked me that, I said, well, I typically play for the people that I'm also with, that it would maybe ask me questions about my faith. And now I've got this open door in the workplace. And that's the thing that we want to create, I think, in the marketplace is we want to create open doors. Uh, I don't mind busting through a few, but it's beautiful when people will ask about my faith. So have some uh, I I will call them non-negotiable disciplines. If you give thanks for your food, you create that. I can't tell you uh, the number of people. Who came up to me? You've talked about a company of 7,000 or plus people. Um, I would be at a conference with, a, with several hundred, and someone would come up to me and say, Man, um, I can't believe just how freely you talked about your faith. Or one time we were sitting at a table doing breakfast, it was about 10 of us, and you, you know, just kind of paused and gave thanks. So be, uh, be bold enough to do simple things that you would always do that are a normal part of your operating rhythm. Don't deviate from that, right? So give thanks for your food. Uh, in public settings in particular, and then pray for the people that you're at the table with. Uh, the second thing that, that happened in those same moments uh, in the workplace um, is that uh, our company had a philosophy of, um, you know, work hard, play hard. So I oftentimes found myself at happy hour. And uh, I used to joke with the team. I was like, I'm not that happy because I'm out here with you guys and all y'all are drunk. Um, but <laughs> but um, I was like, okay, Lord, I'll do this. I would sit at the bar and drink a Coke. And the beautiful thing about bartenders is that when you when you're drinking soda, what y'all call it up here? Soda. Oh yeah. When you're drinking soda, but you probably don't say soda. You probably say soda. You know, that's something like that. yeah. <laughs> they put a straw in your glass. But when you're drinking liquor, they don't give you anything. Or it's a different kind of glass. And so people will go, "That's all you're having." And now and now it's game on. You know, it's why don't you drink? You don't drink alcohol. What's the story? How does that work? And so the Lord, if you just do simple things that are part of your normal operating rhythm, but you will do them in a worldly context, people get curious. Especially what? When you've got relationship capital. This guy comes to work on time. Um, he, he does his job. Um, there's something interesting about him. You know, he's the only one that doesn't continue to forward the email that was kind of racy and nasty, like it always stops with him. A third thing, if you work within an office context, um, what usually happens, quiz time, what usually happens in an office when someone has an unfortunate event in their life, like uh, they're sick or someone dies in their family, what happens in an office? Or any, they collect money and do what else? 
they pass. You say cards. They pass around a card. And what is the number one phrase that people write in the card? Oh, your thoughts and prayers are with you. And so what I decided to do was start completing the sentence. I was like, oh, yeah, thoughts and prayers. And I would go ahead and I would either communicate something a little bit more robust, some more filling than my thoughts and prayers. Like, I am praying that this will happen during this time in your life. And it wouldn't be offensive, but it was something that you couldn't, you know, you would see and feel and know God's mercy and and his presence would even incorporate maybe a, a, a Bible reference. And guess what? The card leaves my desk. Several other people have to sign it. And they're like, what is this? But then it also eventually makes it to the person. So simple gestures where I just said, I just I'm just going to be I'm just going to be like one degree different. But I'm going to be one degree different all the time if I can be. Um, so those are some of the easy measures that I took when I was just a, a fledgling, um, I guess, in the, in the marketplace. When I got into middle management and it developed somewhat of a reputation, um, people clearly knew where I stood on things. And they would start to solicit my opinion. And uh, and I remember in interviews um, and you could you could you try this on for size. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of experience. And so when I started to move up the ladder in interviews, people would always ask the question, well, that's an interesting. Where do you get your leadership principles from? Well, guess what? Uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, one of his concepts is that the way up is down. Well, which author is that? That's Paul talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not right be equal to God, but took a boom, 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 boom. The way up is down. And as a result of Jesus's, you know, great emptying, he received the name that is above every name. And so uh, I mean, there have actually been interviews where I was sitting there with a known agnostic, a known unbeliever and another person who I didn't know their 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 space. And uh, they asked me about my leadership principles. And I started talking like that. And they said, well, where did you get that from? And I was like, oh, Lord, am I about to? you know, nuke my own career. And I just said, all right, I'm going for it. Shoulder shrug. And I was like, that principle actually comes from the Bible. And um, the guy who I didn't know his spiritual background, he lit up because he was actually a believer and he was the most senior person in the room. And I was like, yes. And uh, so uh, needless to say, I got that job. Um, <laughs> um, but there have been other times when I lost jobs, when I got demoted once because I had another senior vice president who um uh, demanded that I be in Phoenix for a quarterly business review. And I had committed to teach a class on Wednesday night at my church and I needed to fly out on Wednesday. And I said, I can get there Thursday. And he was like, what's going on? And I was like, well, I committed to teach this class. And he goes, man, now, again, I'm pretty well known at this point. He goes, Dewberry, you served the Lord enough. He ain't going to get mad with you for missing one church service. And I was like, I'm not trying to go to a church service. I committed to teach a class and I'm the person that if I pull out now, it's going to do damage to to my local you know, fellowship community. And I don't want to do that. So if I'm going to take it on the chin, I'm going to take it on the chin at the job, not in the kingdom. Right. And so um, this guy, um, you know, he was like, you know, let me tell you something, Rod. You know, never put your boss in a position. He was actually my boss's boss pretty far up. He goes, never put your your boss in a position where they have to say no to something. I was like, OK. And uh, and that was kind of doing my uh, I mean, I had really gotten kind of sassy at that point, um, you know, in, in the job. But 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 those moments that didn't come overnight. That was just me. I had built a reputation as being somewhat countercultural. And then when I became an executive and we would have diversity and inclusion moments um, and they wanted to talk about the LGBTQ um, situation, I was like, well, you know what? Free speech and diversity includes this right here. And uh, when I have children, I will not be dressing them in yellow until they figure out what gender they are. I'm going to dress them with what I saw in the ultrasound and and. And people would just they would shriek. But I was like, I'm the boss. Shriek all you want to. Now, again, I'm not trying to be abusive, but I, there have just been different seasons of my whatever. And um, um, and people respected all seasons of that boldness and those little gestures. So uh, but one thing that I believe that the Lord was really gracious in, because some of those moments were just kind of anecdotal, real culture shaping. Um, I was given an opportunity to lead a team. Uh, a pretty large team. And as a part of the, the team leader, you uh, create a series of non-negotiables. And my non-negotiables were these. Um, um, stay humble and hungry. The way up is down. Uh, real strength comes through weakness. Um, and there was like six or seven of them, but they were all based on the Bible. And as an office, we created these little decals. Every time we saw someone 
who illustrated that particular um, area of excellence. Um, oh, even Second Timothy two two, like um, um, real teachers are committed to teach others, and I and that was my play. And what I did was I just wanted to create a culture in the workplace that when people go, man, I really like that. That's so clever. Where'd you get that? I got to be honest with you, I plagiarized that. You know, this one about teaching, that's 2 Timothy 2, 2. Familiar with the Bible? Now they're, they're, they're asking me, but, but that's kind of the, the leader footprint. I get a chance to shape culture based on biblical ideas, knowing that Bible truth works everywhere. And people are always stealing it and hijacking it. They, aren't just giving, they just don't give credit back to the original author. And so I, I hope that's helpful. Um, when I had culture shaping moments, um, and, and actually just, just, just little degrees. So things that I had a chance to control, I went hard in the paint. And then um, a group of uh, believers uh, and, and even non-believers along the spectrum asked me to lead a Bible study and uh, started a Bible study. And it actually got kicked out of our office because they said that that wasn't in agreement with the HR policies. And you won't believe this. This is this is this is all God. So I was so afraid that it was going to get we were going to get kicked out of the office. And they said, listen, you can have the Bible study. You can do anything you want, but you can't have it here. So. Uh, another company across the hall in our same office building found out that the Bible study got kicked out. And it was like, hey, we don't have a problem with that. We have a space. And it was actually a government contractor of all people. It was so bizarre. Right. And they said, we have a conference room. You guys can do that. Um, and so obviously one of the leaders there had sympathies toward toward the faith. Um, and so when we started having Bible study there, when it was over, we come out into the hallway and it'd be this row of folks coming out in the hallway like ducks. And the same person that got us booted out of the office said, where are you guys coming from? Oh, this other company lets us have Bible study. And so it was like, ah, you know, very convicting that the Lord protected the Bible study, because here's the problem. If we had to take the Bible study off site, we would have lost some of the momentum because people would have had to go out and get lunches and then come back. This way I could still have lunch brought in or whatever the case may be, and we could still do it in the same location. So it stayed convenient. And the Lord just protected our Bible study, and it was awesome. And then in the Bible study, I mean, it was no holes barred. I was able to take work ideas and concepts, things that our company talks about, and go, this mirrors biblical ideas. We talk about a culture of accountability. That's not new to corporate America. And I wasn't trying to besmirch the company. I just wanted to constantly create this tether back to the Bible, if I could, around those concepts. And so, again, that that really is in a snapshot, some just moments over a, a, an 18 to 20 year career of how the Lord allowed me to kind of implement some things that did that. And then the um, I mean, and then I, I get I, I would decorate my office with stuff, you know what I mean? You know, Psalm 121 or um, things like um um, yeah, Psalm 121, but I had a little caption in big bold letters like, uh, uh, what is it? Fear tells us to focus on the mountain, but faith tells us to focus on the one who made them. Oh, I love that. Yep, that's Psalm 121. You know what I mean? We talk about that, right? I look to the hills from what's coming my help, my help coming from the boom. Yeah. And so I just looked for ways in every role that the Lord graced me to have. I looked for ways to implement uh, biblical culture because all I wanted was just people to get curious about Jesus. I just wanted to get curious. And they did. And the Lord was very gracious in that regard. That was a very long answer. And that's why I was thinking about maybe doing it tomorrow. But I, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm sorry. But you're welcome, brother. No, I did. <laughs> oh, no, that's a, that's a that's a good one. I could use that. Um, any other questions? I promise not to take 20 minutes per question. When someone like, am I the person that blew it or? Sure, that'd be easier. Yeah. No, like if you're if you're in your in your workspace every day mm-hmm. and you have a time where you are just not walking with the Lord, right? So you're in conversation, you shouldn't be all that stuff, and then mm-hmm. you get back with the Lord. Yeah. Now, how do you kind of? How are you? You know, what are the practical points of like sharing the gospel then? Because now you might not have been living up to. Yeah. Yeah. So I think vulnerability and transparency. Um, so one of the man, one of the things that my peers in the workplace appreciated was that I lived with them. They was like, man, you're a pastor and like you work here. It's just like you get it. They's like you get it. You understand the stuff that we struggle with and the stuff that we go through. Like you're in the trenches with us. So actually 
I'm not going to say that falling creates credibility, but by God's grace, they're like, oh, you're human too. How do you bounce back from that? I was like, man, I, I got to go before the Lord. And here, here's, and here are things that I notice Satan will regularly want to twist my arm on if I don't get them under control. And I'll have people to say, well, hey, man, what about this? How do I work through this? So typically being transparent about areas where I am being transformed invited others to talk about areas where they also needed. Um, need like things things. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Especially performance failures. Like I probably probably one of the best seasons in my life was when I wasn't at the top of the charts or either that's that's corporate performance. But even like when if if it was, you know, character performance, like blowing up on my team for not hitting an objective and then going back and individually apologizing and uh, saying like, hey, this is this is out of character for who I am as a follower of Christ. I'm not just apologizing because I hurt your feelings. That, that's that's one side of the coin, and it's a true side of the coin. But yeah, yeah, taking ownership for some of those failures creates a good platform for furthering that. Thank you. Amen. All right, so store those questions up, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you for this time together. We just pray that your body would be enriched, that your um, your people, Lord God, would put on the whole armor and we would prepare ourselves to go into the marketplace, go into the mission field. And even, Lord God, just go back to our families and be more vigilant for you. So help us to sleep well, stir our curiosity, help us to come to the table with all of our questions, oh God, and um, and help me, oh God, to 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 be able to answer in a way that is reflective of what your word says and not um, not my own broken experience. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.